Okay, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the Oxford Martin School exceptional seminar series by exceptional people. Oh. Um, and we're delighted that Pat Longstaff will give us a seminar this afternoon uh, on risk and resilience. Uh, Pat is a James Martin visiting fellow. Uh, we have a very small number of people that we invite to come and spend from three to six months here. Uh, and Pat is part of the first cohort uh, of this group. Uh, it's been a pleasure having her here. And she has worked for many years on this topic, wearing different hats. She is the David Levidar Professor of Communication Law and Policy at Syracuse University. She's also research associate at Harvard University Center for Information Policy Research, and she's an advisor to many different groups. She's written widely uh, on this topic, and uh, I think will help us in many ways uh, think about what is going to become more and more important as our increasingly hyper-connected uh, and hyper-fast world uh, faces systemic risks. The discussant is Ariella Helfgott, uh, who's from our very own ECI. She's a senior research fellow responsible for developing an implement program of research on risk and resilience and that for the, of human and natural systems. So, very good compliment to Pat's own work. Um, Ariel's also very kindly going to not only be discussing, but also going to chair the uh, discussion as uh, I have to race down to London as soon as Pat's going to be speaking before. So, uh, thanks to you for coming, and the floor is yours. Thank you. <coughs> oh, sorry. Well, thank you, Ian, and thank you all for coming. Um, we were overwhelmed at the response to the um, announcement of the seminar. Um, I have some theories about why that is, and I'll talk about those in a second. But let me welcome particularly those of you who've never been to the Oxford Martin School before. Um, as you can see, there are some wonderful things going on here um, that are interdisciplinary. Um, and I hope you'll all come back. Um, Okay, so where we are today is resilience. And the first question I want to address is why now? Why in 2009, 2010, 2011, all of a sudden people are interested in resilience? Um, there have been people who have been working in, with that word in ecology for quite a long time and in other disciplines for somewhat shorter time, but it's been around. Um, I think people got most interested in it after the financial collapse because all of a sudden it became clear to us that there are things that we can't predict. That in fact our world has more uncertainty today than it had in the past. And we've always, it's never been a clockwork universe as we're going to see. But the amount of uncertainty is certainly going up, so people are interested in the concept of how do we bounce back after something bad happens. And I got interested in that because my industry, the industry that I've spent my life in is the communications industry, and as you probably noticed, there's a lot of uncertainty in the communications business. Um, so I asked the question, how do you manage or regulate an industry with such high uncertainty? And that led me to ecology, of all places. 
um, and a bunch of other things that I'm going to talk about, um, but in different disciplines. So I found some ideas that cross disciplines, which I guess means it's cross-disciplinary as opposed to interdisciplinary. Um, but I hope we get to talk some more about that as well. Um, who cares? Uh, the people who are asking me to give speeches include people who are interested in community resilience, um, people who care about how a community bounces back after a flood or a hurricane or a volcano or whatever, um, defense and security organizations. Um, just gave a big speech in Washington to the Department of Homeland Security, um, speaking to a bunch of UK defense organizations in March. Um, and in Vancouver to a community resilience group. So a lot of those people are interested too. Um, if you look at the people who are writing about resilience now, some of it is used to be called natural disaster recovery. Some of it was first responders. Some of it was a bunch of other things which have now been sort of rebranded as resilience. So scholars who were doing a bunch of different things said, bouncing back from bad things. Yes, we do that. So we do resilience. OK. Um, that makes it confusing if you're going to the library and typing in the word resilience. Um, and there's no way to trademark the word. And Ariel is going to talk a little bit about definitions. But definitions are important to academics, um, as well they should be. Um, it's a big debate going on about what is the definition of resilience. Um, having watched that debate now for three years, I'm not very hopeful that it will come to any kind of conclusion. Um, but I'm not sure it matters outside of the academy. And for people who have to worry about how resilient their community is, how resilient their organization is, how resilient their firm is, what matters is that you know what you want to accomplish. And you can call it green cheese if you want to. Doesn't matter. Um, how will we know if resilience is something that's bigger than a discipline? If it's like a new discipline, and boy, I hope that's not true. Um, the answer is we're just in the very beginning stages. And we need to test these concepts in various disciplines. And one of the things that I'm trying to do here at Oxford is find people who are interested in this in various disciplines so we can test it in their discipline. So we're only in the very beginning of this. And stay tuned. So um, definitions. Is it a metaphor? Yes. Um, can you measure it? Not that I know of yet. Um, although there are people who are working on that. And it's important that it be able to be measured, particularly for the people in the insurance industry and the financial industry because they have to turn it into pounds, or dollars, or euros, whatever. Um, so it's important that we find some measurements for it. Um, 
Can it predict or explain things? Yes, I think it can. And I'll explain that as we go along. Um, are there testable hypotheses? Yes. But it's very context specific. So in order to test a hypothesis, we have to know resilient of what to what. Um, risk. What's the difference between risk and resilience? Get asked that a lot. And I have given that quite a lot of thought. Uh, it kind of depends on what your definition is of risk. But um, the sort of general definition of risk is the magnitude of a potential bad thing times the likelihood of its occurrence. Um, so to that, I would add minus the resilience of the system. So if you want to reduce the risk, resilience is a decent strategy for doing that. Um, resilience is two things, at least two things. It's the capacity of a system to bounce back or to maintain its functions and control. And this last part is really important and getting a lot of attention. It maintains its functions and controls and degrades gracefully if necessary. So it's the capacity of a system when something bad happens that it does, there's not a cascading failure where it's really good up here and then boom, it's just gone. So for electrical systems, we really want our electrical systems to degrade gracefully, sort of not just go on, off. A um, bunch of other systems that we want to degrade gracefully. Um, it's also a strategy. So it's a capacity of a system, but it's a strategy of people who are trying to deal with that system to make it, to give it that capacity. And as a capacity, I think it's probably measurable. As a strategy, I'm not sure. I think the only way you measure a strategy is when you test the strategy. And maybe the only way you measure the resilience of a system is when it gets shocked. We can make, we can do a lot of things in a community that we think will help that community bounce back, but we won't know how well it's going to work until they get a flood or a hurricane or a volcano or whatever. So testing it requires something bad to happen, which is never fun. OK, uncertainty. Why is it so uncertainty? Why is there so much uncertainty? And who cares? Um, Walker and Salt, who are ecologists, um, who Ariella may talk about some more, um, wrote a book called Resilience Thinking. Um, but they apply a lot of ecological concepts to other kinds of resilience in that book. And they urge us to think about cog world and bug world. In cog world, there are a lot of cogs. Some of them are big cogs, some of them are medium cogs, and some of them are really teeny cogs, and they go together. And if you change the speed of a cog, all the other cogs adjust, because that's what they do. In bug world, there are lots of bugs. And the bugs compete with each other. They adapt to each other. They adapt to their environment. 
and over a long period of time, it's pretty much unpredictable. Even in a short period of time, it can be unpredictable. I think a lot of us want to think of the world as if it was designed by Sir Isaac Newton, right? That if you just knew all the variables, you could predict it. You could come up with a formula and predict it. And maybe someday that'll happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon in bug world. And unfortunately, all of us live in bug world. Nobody lives in cog world unless you live in chemistry, where adding 1 plus 1 usually equals 2. In the world that we all have to live in, sometimes 1 plus 1 equals 2. Sometimes when you add one more thing to something, the impact of adding one more thing is totally out of proportion to adding one more thing. And often, we can't predict what that is. So if we have to live in bug world, um, it's kind of interesting to know about a bunch of research called complex adaptive systems. And probably a lot of people in here are familiar with that, so I won't give you a lot of detail about that. But complex adaptive systems are systems with interdependent, interacting, and adapting components and variables. So things are being bug-like. They're interacting, they're interdependent, and there are lots of variation and novelty being added to the system from outside. So it's not just the endogenous variables that are important. It's a system with variation being added from outside and often from outside places that nobody thought about before. Um, unpredictable systems connect at various scales, just like cog world with the big cogs and the small cogs. Um, in bug world, there are lots of scales. There are local and global scales, so things that happen pretty much locally and things that happen globally, things that happen over a long period of time, and things that happen very quickly. And interestingly, it's at the borders of those scales where we often find surprises. So where fast scales meet slow scales, where the internet met television, we find surprises. And if you're interested in resilience, that's probably where you would spend a lot of time, looking at the boundaries between those scales. Um, this is all called um, the new normal. Very trendy to uh, call the way the world is now the new normal. Um, in military science, it has been called forever the fog of war. So, and that's why it's so interesting when I talk to military people, um, they get it right away. Although most people who are military officers were trained as engineers. So you would think they were sort of cog world people. But you don't have to be in those kinds of situations very long before you see the fog of war. 
and how unpredictable things are. So they get it. And people who do first responders and natural disasters, they get it. You just can't plan for it. Surprises happen all the time. So there's a couple of risk strategies that have been identified by Walker and Salt and Gunderson and Holling and a bunch of <coughs> ecologists. Um, and in whatever discipline you call home, you may recognize these by other names. That's fine. That's just fine. Um, but let's talk about three different kinds. One is resistance. And if you're in the security or defense world, this is where you would prefer to be. You would prefer to keep all the dangers away. So the people you're protecting never get challenged. We would prefer to keep all the terrorists away. We would prefer to keep all the hurricanes away. Um, doesn't seem to be possible. So a resistance strategy in the old world would be to build a wall around your city. And that works as long as the people who are you're at risk from have bows and arrows and swords. If they get gunpowder and cannons, building a wall is not so good. The problem with resistance strategies is as long as they work, they're wonderful and they're the preferred strategy. But when they fail, they have a, fail, they have a tendency to fail catastrophically. So as soon as the cannon breaches the wall, everybody inside dies. As soon as the terrorist gets onto the plane, everybody dies. Unless it's in their underwear or whatever. Um, so um, that other resistance strategy that we use for screening people on airplanes is called detection and response. And detection and response is preferred. That's wonderful. As, but as I said, it has a tendency to fail catastrophically. Um, then we get to these two kinds of resilience. Um, and there are sort of subcategories within these. Um, but one of them is called by the ecologists uh, engineering resilience. And engineering resilience is where you get the system to bounce back to exactly its specifications. So if you drop your laptop, you want it to come back to do exactly what it was designed to do. And you measure resilience in an engineering sense in the amount of time it takes to come back to specifications. That's one kind. The next kind is ecological or adaptive resilience, where the system doesn't bounce back to its original state. It bounces back to something different. It's adapted to the new realities that it has to face. So it needs adaptive capacity. And there is actually engineering, computer engineering, that allows computers to be adaptive. So it's not that engineering resilience is for engineered systems and ecological is for ecological. No, they actually are in each other's domain. It's just a way of talking about them. Um, 
this is the organization in Stockholm um, that sort of put together a lot of this stuff. And I recommend you go to their site. And they have a fabulous Facebook page um, with videos um, that will talk some more about some of the things I'm going to talk about. Um, OK, so if we're going to plan for resilience, if we have an organization and we want to plan for some resilience, um, or if we're planning for the resilience of an ecosystem or whatever we're interested in, we first have to find out what our risks are. And they fall into at least four categories. There may be more. Known risks, stuff we know is going to happen, and we kind of know when it's going to happen. So those are pretty easy. We won't even deal with those. Um, then we get to known unknowns. So we know that something is going to happen because it happens cyclically. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen, but we know we're pretty sure it's going to happen. Um, and we see those in systems that have cycles and power laws. And I'll give you an example of a power law that I dealt with recently. Black swans, and no, this is not about ballerinas. Um, anybody know what a black swan is? Anybody read the book, The Black Swan? Yes, sir, what's a black swan? Well, it's a complete surprise. And, and the terminology originated from, for the longest time, you know, the European society had never seen a black swan. And only white swans. They had gotten to the point where they were using the phrase, well, that would be a black swan. Okay, like, never going to happen. They got to Australia, whole flocks of black swans. The point being, surprise is going to be coming at you, and you don't know which ones. So it's theoretically possible. It's just nobody's ever seen it before. And the stock market dropping 500 points in one day was a black swan. 10,000 people marching through the streets of Cairo, black swan. A week ago, nobody would have predicted that. But it was theoretically possible. And then we have unknown unknowns, um, famously called by a infamous former Secretary of Defense, unk unks. Um, but we're seeing more and more of those all the time. Things that weren't even theoretically possible. But because of the new ways that things are being put together, we're seeing more unk-unks all the time. So how do we plan for black swans, unknowns, unknowns, and these cyclical and power law things? Um, the goals for any kind of planning. Uh, for predictable systems, this is easy. This is what we do. And this is the sort of thing that people are clinging to. Um, and people are hoping that a lot of these other unpredictable systems move into this. And I hope they do too. Um, develop facts. Do some reproducibility of your um, research. Uh, do some risk elimination. It's essentially a resistance strategy. OK, good. Uh, for known unknowns, for these cyclical and unpredictable emergence systems, you can develop odds, which is not predictability, by the way. It's just odds. Um, and then for really unpredictable s systems, 
I think the way you manage those systems is you develop some acceptable parameters. So we're going to let the system operate within this parameter right here. If it gets out of this parameter, we're going to nudge it back into a parameter that we like. And I think that's eventually how we'll get around things like the economic cycles, but we'll see. So uh, for those of you who it's been a while since you were in some sort of statistical analysis class, um, you'll re but you'll all recognize a normal distribution curve, right? Um, this is a gamma distribution curve, also called a power law. And a power law or gamma distribution is almost always a sign of a system with high uncertainty. And what happens in a power law distribution is you get a few things that are very successful, say. Um, oh, I guess I have a pointer thingy. Um, and a lot of things that aren't. So if that's what your system looks like, you're probably dealing with some uncertainty and probably resilience would be good. So what I did was I got all the data for Hollywood movies. And we looked at, this is 2002, but we did 10 years of it. And the <coughs> graphs every year look exactly the same. They're a power law every year. So that means it's a system with high uncertainty. Yes. And as part of this research, I talked to people in Hollywood, the head of Universal, head of Disney, um, and they assured me that there is nobody in Hollywood who can predict what the next hit is going to be, believe it or not. And yet, the products of Hollywood are the number one export of the United States in dollar terms. Occasionally, when Boeing is having a good year and Airbus is having a not so good year, Boeing is better. But most years, it's Hollywood, a system with really high uncertainty. So what I did was look at some of these resilience factors that have been identified by the ecologists and looked to see if I saw them in Hollywood. And sure enough, they were all there. So I think that says that this has some applicability outside of ecology. Um, so we all know what this graph is, right? Um, there was a wonderful article published about a month ago um, talking about the this time it's different syndrome, right? This time, this isn't going to happen. And of course, it did. And every time we get to sort of the high part of this, somebody will say, this time it's different. I actually remember people saying that at the height of the dot-com bubble. This time it's different. The dot-com world has taken over. It's not really a bubble. Uh, this is another way of, of uh, s sort of showing the same thing. 
there are slowdowns, downturns, recoveries, and expansions. And it just goes around and around. It's a cycle. Um, the ecologists saw this in ecological systems. And they saw it in a lot of ecological systems. And then they started seeing it in the management systems for ecology. The people who were trying to manage these ecological systems went through these same cycles, which they thought was kind of interesting. Um, and um, this is talked a little bit about in that resilience book, but there's a whole book on panarchy. And oh, before I forget, before you leave, if you're interested, I have some further reading. Once a professor, always a professor. Uh, and my card. Um, so what happens is we get a, um, a part of the system where there's growth, and the system gets very complex and interdependent. And then there's a fall off in this omega part of the cycle. And what this is supposed to represent is that within systems, there are subsystems that have their own cycles. So it, it's important to know not only where your system is in its cycle, but where the subsystems that are important to your system are. So there's a rapid growth and exploitation phase, a conservation phase. And in rapid growth and exploitation, there's a lot of diversity. Uh, think about the dot-com bubble, um, or any kind of bubble. In the growth phase, a lot of people are getting into whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, lots of diversity. And then there's a conservative phase where there's lots of mergers and acquisitions. And all of a sudden, there's only three or four firms. Um, and then, if it's really bad, um, there's a collapse and release. So all the firms, or most of the firms, collapse. And all the resources that were locked up in those firms get released to be used in the economy in new ways. So it's not a bad thing, always. Sometimes it's important for big organizations to collapse and have all those resources reused in new ways. Um, all the major changes occur in the alpha and omega phases. So if that's what you want to do is change this system, those are the parts of the cycle that you want to concentrate on. So theoretically, we could predict, right, where we are in the system so that we could respond to that part of the system, sort of. Um, this is a graph that shows the um, number of times the word recession was used uh, during recessions. Um, and as you can see, the word use comes late in the actual recession. So people don't even know they're in a recession, or at least the New York Times hasn't figured out, um, until late in the game. This is my favorite quote. I'll just let you read it. It's not that these people were stupid. 
And it's not that they didn't understand the concept of resilience in a sort of basic way, but they were counting the wrong stuff. And they had convinced themselves that this time it's different. They weren't counting the things that eventually cascaded into collapsing the system. So um, what kinds of things makes a system resilient? And this now, I'm going to talk about things in lots of different systems, ecological systems, human systems, technical systems. Um, every system that I've been able to look at myself or get people to help me look at. Um, diversity, having lots of options. See it absolutely every place. Um, having the right balance of tight and loose coupling. Tight and loose coupling was originally also described by an ecologist, but was later picked up by organizational theorists and management theorists. And the idea is some systems are tightly coupled in that what, well, you've all heard the story about the sticks, the bundle of sticks. I've heard it attributed to the ancient Greeks and John Lennon and just about everybody in between. Um, but the story is that there's a bundle of sticks uh, with a string around them. And somebody says to their child or whoever, look at this bundle of sticks. Individually, these sticks will break very quickly. But if you put them together in a bundle, you can't break them. And the takeaway from that story is supposed to be we're stronger together. Tight coupling. These sticks are all together in one bundle. Yes, unless the danger that that bundle of sticks faces is fire. And then it's not so good. Because what affects one stick is going to affect all the sticks because they're so tightly coupled. So a tightly coupled system is where, one where if you push one thing, the whole system is going to react. Um, in material science, um, a material is very tightly coupled, becomes very brittle, and a resilient material has loose coupling at the molecular level. Everybody with me? Okay. So you want to have the right balance between tight and loose coupling. If you want the system to react as a unit, tight coupling is your thing. If you don't want the system to react as a unit, if you want the system to, if there are errors in the system, you want to be able to sort of shovel, take off one piece of the system and let the errors die out in that system before it infects the rest of the system. Um, and we can talk more about that too. Um, intervening at the right scale. Um, even diversity, which I've already said, helps resilience. If you have diversity at one scale and make everybody at that scale resilient, it has a tendency to reduce the resilience of a higher scale. And we can talk about some examples of that. Um, brand new book out, 
um, diversity and complexity that, and this, these are not for physicists, this is just for like normal people. Um, good book if you want to understand diversity. Um, and adaptive capacity, which we've already talked about. Um, and adaptive capacity is essentially having the capacity to learn. And you learn both from the slow scale, from stuff that happened over a long period of time, and stuff that's happening right now. So learning is not just looking at what's on your favorite website today. Learning is also, and being able to adapt, is knowing what happened 100 years ago. Because things do have a tendency to come around. Two trade-offs that are important that we don't talk about and that we need to talk about. And that is that efficiency is the enemy of resilience sometimes. Often, in fact. I had a slide similar to this at a speech in Hamburg speaking to a bunch of German economists. And there was a sort of sucking in a breath. There was like no oxygen left in the room because efficiency is what economists care about. And if e efficiency is the enemy of resilience, that was a very scary thing. But I'm convinced of it. Not always, but a lot of times. And to the extent that we ask our organizations to become more efficient, we have to be able to consciously admit that we're also asking them to be less resilient. Um, efficiency. And the efficiency definition I'm using here is getting less input for more output. So I get really, really good at what I do. Really good at what I do. Which means I don't have very many loose connections to other people or other ideas, um, a whole bunch of things. And we can talk about that more if you want to. The other is that resilience at one scale can reduce resilience at another scale. So public policies that give us lots of community resilience or lots of national resilience can reduce our community resilience. Community resilience could reduce state resilience. Um, and there's all kinds of ways we can go with that, too. But I want to just finish this up, and then we'll, open, we'll let Ariella take her best shot here. Um, Resilience fails when um, it's too novel. We've never seen this kind of thing before. None of our systems for coping know how to deal with this black swan or this unkunk. It's too fast. Things are coming at us too fast, and all our resilience mechanisms don't cope. Um, or there's too many. There are multiple types of risks that all of a sudden fall on us at the same time, and that has a tendency to make resilience fail. Um, interestingly, there's an article in the um, International Herald Tribune about a month ago 
that talks about resilience for individuals, individual people, um, which caught my eye. And it says past resilience um, means you'll be stronger. So if you've had to be resilient in your life, the chances are you'll be resilient again. Um, so having experience with it helps. Um, for an organization, same thing. Um, if it's weakened by previous surprises, it's too tightly coupled, it's too efficient. Um, it has no redundancy for critical functions. And by redundancy, I mean um, something that backs up something else. So every time you're in an airplane, you can be thankful for the concept of redundancy because every single critical system on that plane has not one but two redundant systems backing it up. I always feel really good about that when I'm over the Atlantic or the Pacific. Um, and the last one I, I've written a lot about and I care a lot about, individuals and organizations, their most critical asset in a time of Disaster, for example, is a trusted source of information. <coughs> and in many countries, that is not government. And tragically, in some other countries, it's not the media. Because government and media have squandered that trust on short-term things. Um, it's something eventually we're going to have to pay attention to. It's a long-term asset that shouldn't be squandered willy-nilly. Um, the blame game. The blame game is, everybody knows what the blame game is? Something icky happens and then somebody stands up and says, they're to blame, right? Um, in complex adaptive systems, that's a little tricky because finding out what caused something is not so easy to figure out. Um, and you won't be surprised to know that the Department of Homeland Security, that's what they wanted me to talk about. Because what happens if you play the blame game too much is when something icky happens, what happens? Everybody's computer hard drive gets wiped. All the files go away. Nobody talks about it because everybody's afraid to be blamed. And so the organization doesn't learn. It loses part of its adaptive capacity. So blame game has to be played with some care. Um, and this slide just talks about feedback and I wanna to get to your question. So managing the new normal. Uh, first and foremost, Acknowledge unpredictable and expand your time horizon for measuring success. Um, that may be the hardest. That's why I put it first. Um, and the way you do that within an organization is to start to change the narrative about what's success and what is risk and what we're going to value in this organization. Um, Start to value people who are good at improvisation, particularly if you're in a system with really high uncertainty. 
You need to know people who are good at look, having a view of the whole system and being able to nudge it. And you know who the people are? We can teach you a lot about that. The people who control the electrical grid. The electrical grid itself, it turns out, is really unpredictable. Who knew? Electrons, right? Um, and what the people do at the big switches is sort of nudge it back into acceptable parameters. They're really good at improvisation. Um, you could create a subsystem for a time of crisis. So in times of stability, here's the rules. A causes B, this causes that. And then in times of instability, we have these other rules. Um, and they allow us to be more resilient. Um, OK, here we go. Um, and these came from, interestingly, the Ditchley Foundation, which is just north of here, I understand, in a really cool old place. Um, and uh, last one, I promise. Um, don't make your system go faster than you can respond to surprises. Uh, develop new things. Have diverse links. Uh, important functions should have redundancy, even though that's not efficient. Um, and stay in touch with both the slow and the fast parts of your system. It's one of my favorite little sayings. The fast proposes, but the slow disposes. Um, and with that, I will let Ariella